And as you're taking your seats, if you would, take a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah chapter 22, just a reminder, you can find the sermon text as well as an outline of the passage in the uh, bulletin. Without further ado, hear, hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired Word. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops, you who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town, your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore, I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen and Kerr uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the walls. You made a reservoir between the two pools for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to him who did it, or see him who planned it long ago. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth, and behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, come. Go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here? And, who, and whom have you here? That you have cut out here a tomb for yourself, you who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David, he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open, and I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house, and they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring, and issue every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Thus ends the reading of God's word. <clears throat> the grass withers, 
A flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask his blessing this morning as we consider his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and gracious, and we, your people, are needy. We need to hear your word, and we need, we need you to give us grace that our ears might hear what you have to say to us. Be with us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Their motto was carpe diem, but it should have been coram deo. Are we any different? That's two Latin phrases, four Latin words, but bear with me a moment. Carpe diem, or seize the day, from the Roman poet Horace, sometime around 23 BC, 700 years after Isaiah. The full quote in English is something like this. Seize the day, trusting as little as possible in the next one. In other words, don't worry about the future. Live for today, now. Similar to Epicureanism in some ways, some of the 16th, 17th century American poets. But if we update it, seize the day. In the 21st century terms, we might say, hashtag YOLO. You only live once. And this is the attitude of Jerusalem in Isaiah 22. Live for today, for the now. Seek pleasure, avoid pain. Is that the best philosophy? When war, invasion is imminent, wouldn't a better approach have been to live Coram Deo? Coram Deo, R.C. Sproul used to say it, before the face of God, in His presence. Before the face of God, we are humbled by our sin and imperfections. Before the face of God, we see a glimpse of eternity. We realize that this life is not all that there is. A reminder, Isaiah 13 to 24, those chapters, it's called the oracles against foreign nations. Judgment on the nations, both an encouragement and a warning to God's people. Encouragement, your enemies will not terrorize you forever. Warning, your enemies cannot save you from, your neighbors cannot save you from your other enemies. Only God can do that. They must trust in God alone to deliver them. But, but by the way, did you notice this oracle is not about a foreign nation. It's about the city of David, verse 9. It's about Jerusalem and her downfall. Israel, God's people, are at risk of becoming just like the other nations and not in a good way. They're not trusting in God. They're simply living for the now. That's one of four things that we learn from this passage. What else do we learn? Well, first off, we learn the valley of vision can't see the coming commotion. The valley of vision can't see the coming commotion. Verses 1 through 8. What is the valley of vision? Valley where Isaiah saw his visions, maybe, some think so. Or is it an ironic name for Jerusalem? Jerusalem's known for Mount Zion. Mount Zion was really more like a hill. Jerusalem is surrounded, actually, by seven mountains, so it is more like a valley. But the valley of vision is not what it should be. As one commentator says, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, is in reality a valley where no real vision exists. The people of Jerusalem are blind to the Lord's purposes. Let's take a look. Verse 1 of chapter 22, the oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean, 
that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops. Verse 2, you who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town, sacrifices were offered to pagan gods upon the housetops. Might be what they're doing. They're certainly in an exultant mood, but should they be? Barry Webb calls this senseless revelry. It's tone deaf. It's missing the point. Look at the end of verse 2. Your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. People are dying of famine because the city is under siege most likely. Their supply chain issues were a whole lot worse than ours. And it gets worse. Verse 3. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they fled far away. Famine casualties and fugitive leaders. It's the way Derek Kidner sums up those two verses. And therefore, Isaiah weeps in verse 4. Why? Because verse 5, For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. Now, what is Isaiah seeing? The present or the future? I think the best explanation is both. The siege conditions might fit 701 BC when Assyria tried and failed to invade Jerusalem. You can compare all this to Isaiah 36 and 37 when the angel of the Lord, not Israel's own strength, the angel of the Lord miraculously defeats Sennacherib, their enemy and potential invader. And then about 100 years later, after Isaiah's death, 587 or 6 BC, Jerusalem did fall. It's time to Babylon. So, so what is Isaiah seeing? Which one? Well, by God's miraculous vision, I think Isaiah is seeing the wages of Israel's sin that will come to pass, that will come due in 586 B.C., but he's seeing it sometime around 700 B.C., after they've narrowly avoided defeat. But Isaiah sees that they haven't changed. They're rejoicing sacrificing to foreign gods, false gods, dead gods, instead of the true and living God who miraculously saved them. They see momentary deliverance. They do not see the rebellion, the idol worship that will lead to their demise a hundred years later. Is Jerusalem a valley of vision? Not really. They don't see what Isaiah sees. No, they aren't prophets. But they should have seen more. They should have seen their own sin. They should have seen their own helpless condition. In Isaiah 36 and 37, the likely setting of the story, Israel is delivered only because the angel of the Lord comes and strikes down 185,000 Assyrians in a night. Only a fool would see that and conclude, what a great comeback in victory by Israel. It's a joyous day for Israel, but it didn't mean she was great and mighty. Israel had almost all the same problems the day after God delivered them. The sin and frankly stupidity that dragged them down was still there. It was just God's miraculous grace that was keeping them from reaping the fruit of their sin, his kindness, as Romans says, was meant to lead them to repentance. 
But God's people were unwilling. The next party was more appealing. YOLO. You only live once. Carpe diem. Seize the day. But why not seize the day by seeing God's greater purpose for today and tomorrow and eternity? Why not take a moment to return to him, as verse 11 says? They didn't. So there would be tumult, trampling, confusion, a battering down of walls. Verses 6 through 8 say, Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen, and Kerr uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. Elam, as we learned two weeks ago, is code for the Persians who may have fought alongside Babylon before they overthrew Babylon. And in other words... Verses 6 through 8 is probably a vision of the tumult that's coming in 586 B.C. Because Israel never learned her lesson in 701 B.C. Sin blinds. It's one of the compounding consequences of sin. A hardened heart, a blind eye to our own sin. But Psalm 51 says, a broken and a contrite heart God will not despise. A heart that is broken over its sin is a good thing. A heart that says, show me my sin. Show me what I must turn from. A heart that prays Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see the man that says, carpe diem, YOLO, you only live once, can't see the consequences of his actions, and sometimes doesn't want to. The man that lives quorum Deo before the face of God wants to see his sin so that he can turn from it, so that he can turn to his Savior. The Valley of Vision had no vision. They couldn't see the coming commotion in judgment, but they could see something, some problems, which leads to our second point. The self-sufficiency of God's people can't replace repentance. That's the second thing we learn. The self-sufficiency of God's people can't replace repentance. Verses 8 through 11. Here Israel's problem is not partying. It's self-sufficiency. Self-salvation. I can clean myself up. Verse 8 says God has taken away their covering, their protection. And this is all a future vision stated in the past tense because it's so certain. It's a done deal. Look with me, verses 8 through 10. We read part of verse 8. He's taken away their covering. Then in that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. We'll read 11 in one second. First, it says, in that day, a day to come, they looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, a house or a palace that Solomon built and then stocked with weapons. First Kings 10, 17 mentions it. They got more weapons to go on the offensive against their enemies. They also shored up their defenses. First, they tore down their own houses. It's impressive. To reinforce the city walls, their main defense. It also mentions you collected the waters of the lower pool in verse 10, and then says this in 11, you made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. Now this 
ancient water supply, which some people think still stands today. It's mentioned several times in the Bible. I don't fully understand it, just admitting it. But it was apparently some ingenious engineering to ensure that no enemy could cut off their water supply during a siege. You know, a siege when you try to starve them out, make them come out and fight. They couldn't cut off their water. That's the point. Well, what's really the point? Of the weapons in the forest, the city wall, this cool water supply insurance plan. They're all ways that Israel can save herself, defend herself. Is this what she should be doing right now? Well, read carefully. What do you think God thinks? The end of verse 11. Well, let's read the whole thing. You made a reservoir after all the other stuff they did. You made a reservoir between the two pools, two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to him who did it. Or see him who planned it long ago. God planned the first failed invasion of Jerusalem in 701 BC. And the second successful one in 586. God planned it. Ordained it. Is a judgment to people who didn't want to repent. You know, in one sense from Israel's perspective, this didn't have to happen. If they had sought the Lord and repented like God wanted them to all along, it didn't have to happen. But no one turned to God. No one wept over their sin, though Isaiah wept over other people's sin. One commentator says God's people oscillated between activism and escapism. Activism is what you see here, verses 9 through 11, building back the walls, getting our weapons and our defenses ready. Escapism is what you see in verses 1 and 2, 12 and 14. Partying instead of mourning. Possibly offering sacrifices to pagan gods as if they had done anything to save them. As Webb says, the former was a denial of faith. The latter, a denial of repentance. In other words, building back the walls, all those other things. It does not primarily show that they had faith in God to save them. Now, it's possible to trust God and still buy a home security system, right? It's also possible to trust your home security system or your bank account or a thousand other things instead of trusting God, right? As for the escapism, the partying when they should have been mourning over the dead, it was a denial of repentance. There's nothing in my life that needs to change. All I know is something good happened, so I'm going to party. I don't care if I was this close to death. No, I don't care if God is trying to send me a wake-up call. I'm living for the now, and you can only live once. Some people are trusting in this or that, something besides God, to deliver them from the scary things of life. And some people are ignoring the scary reality and seeking pleasure now. But what no one did, Barry Webb says, was look to the Lord in repentance and faith. But you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. Self-sufficiency can't replace repentance. You know, maybe Israel's problem was not the following. Not enough swords, not enough walls, not enough food and water. Maybe that wasn't their problem. Maybe their problem was... Not enough repentance. 
Not enough turning from sin. Not enough turning to and trusting in their God. Maybe all God wanted from them was repentance. Be merciful to me, O God, a sinner. Be merciful to me. Help me see my sin, my addiction to it. Help me turn from it every day by the power of your Spirit. Let your grace, like a, like a fetter, like a chain, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Prone to trust my own efforts. Prone to trust other sources of pleasure to fix what's wrong with me or others. Prone to leave the God I love. You know, maybe you feel so lost this morning, so restless that you can't sit still. You just have to fix something. Something that's wrong with you, something that's wrong with someone else. Maybe you don't even know. You have to do something. You have to fix something. A lot of us here are like that. I like to say we are a church full of engineers and people who think like engineers. We are a Home Depot kind of people. It's how doers get things done. We're doers. Doers have a hard time letting someone else help. Even if someone else is the only one who can help. Maybe God wants you to let him fix you. To fix the walls that he has torn down. Because as I've said many times in the words of Stephen Chadwick, it is a wonder what God can do with a broken heart when he gets all the pieces. Let him have all the pieces, my friends. Nothing can replace repentance, not self-sufficiency, not anything. That leads to our third lesson this morning. What do we learn? We learn thirdly, the senseless revelry of God's people can't see beyond the now. The senseless revelry of God's people can't see beyond the now. Verses 12 to 14. Senseless revelry is a line from Webb about verses 1 and 2. It fits here too. Now let's review. God's people have likely survived one invasion. Famine casualties, fugitive leaders resulted. Isaiah wept. The people didn't. Isaiah saw the coming destruction. The people didn't. Some of them were in a frenzy saving themselves. Others chose escapism. None of them repented. Not enough to mention anyway. So in verse 12, Isaiah returns to that previous theme, the escapism. Carpe diem, YOLO, you only live once. That whole idea. Verses 12 and 13. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. A college student once told me, Dave Matthews is a Christian because he quotes the Bible in one of his songs. Which verse? This one. <laughs> Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die young. You can look at 1 Corinthians 15, 32 as well. It's, it's not an exact quote by Dave Matthews, and it's also, of course, championing a philosophy that the Bible condemns. Is this what God wants? Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die? That's what the Bible says. Now, I've lost touch with Jared, that college kid. I hope he knows better these days. But God's people in Isaiah 22, clueless. 
They live in the valley of no vision, blind to their own sin, can't see beyond the now. God wants them to mourn and they want to party. You only live once, so let's party. But you're about to die. We'd better make it a good party. If this life is all there is, then that makes sense. But what if there's more? What if there is a life more abundant and free? What if the only way to get there is to stop living for the now? What if your YOLO life is headed for destruction? What did God say in response? Verse 14, the Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for for you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. God is not saying they can't repent. God is saying since you refuse to repent, you will surely die. You will surely pay the penalty for your sin because you did not turn to the one who could pay this penalty on your behalf. In the words of Derek Thomas, those who lacked repentance were not assured of heaven. And the particular kind of repentance that God wanted, the particular sin he wanted them to turn from, it was this whole YOLO, carpe diem, living only for the now thing. Because what does that lifestyle ultimately believe? What does that lifestyle ultimately deny? It believes by its actions. It shows this is all there is. This is as good as it gets. Time's running out, so squeeze the goodness out of life while you still can. And you know that logic with no restraint, it'll ultimately lead you to crush anyone that stands in the way of your happiness. That's what YOLO, what carpe diem leads to. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And how dare you tell me not to eat and drink? What does that lifestyle deny? It denies a fundamental truth of the Bible. The world, this world, is not as good as it gets. Paradise has been lost. It will be regained. But not for those who live for themselves alone, because those who will see paradise, they follow a Savior who did not live for himself. 1 Corinthians 2, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christ did not live for the now. He lived for the joy that was set before him, the joy that lay on the other side of agony. The cross came before the crown. But in another sense, the crown was first, and then the cross, and then the crown again. What do I mean? Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He didn't live for the now. Christ died on the cross so that you would know this is not all there is. This is not as good as it gets. Christ bought 
and purchased the life that is better than this for you. Laid down his life for you. And he didn't do it so that you could party. He did it to show you there is something better than the next party. And deep down, you know this. That's why you're here. Even if you're here slightly under compulsion this morning, you know, you could have been somewhere else this morning. If this life is all there is, why are you here this morning listening to me? I'm sure there are better forms of entertainment out there. On some level, you want something better than entertainment, don't you? You want something more than other partiers yelling YOLO and carpe diem. You want to know something larger than life, greater than self, lasting forever. You want to live before the face of God. You want to know the joy of his presence to see God and not be afraid to be accepted by him despite your sin and selfishness. You want to see beyond the now, beyond the clouds, beyond the sun. You want to see God face to face. And you can through faith in his son, our Savior. That leads to our last point. Yeah, maybe I should have stopped there, but I got one more. It's a short one. Fourth thing we learn, the case studies of self-centeredness can teach us if we let them. They can teach us if we let them. Verses 15 to 25. There's two case studies here, warnings for our instruction. We've gone from the macro level of Israel down to the micro level. This is how this carpe diem, YOLO thing played out for these two men. The first one is Shebna, a steward who was more than a steward, the king's right-hand man at first. In the face of death, which he thought was imminent, he tried to carve a tomb for himself out of the rock. It's the kind of tomb that kings had. He was acting like a king so that he could be remembered, so that other generations would think he was important. Now, Shebna didn't party. Shebna played the long game, but it was still selfish and self-centered. The glory, joy, pleasure that Shebna wanted was a remembrance, an immortal name and memory. He wanted the satisfaction now of what would happen in the future. How does God respond? Verse 17, behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office. You will be pulled down from your station. I'd sum that up by saying the one who exalts himself is humbled. The next case study is Eliakim. Verse 20, Eliakim got promoted above Shebna later on. Most of what you see for Eliakim is good news. Recognition and honor in verse 21. Authority, verse 22, the keys of David. Authority over the kingdom. He's probably the second in command of the king. Security, verse 23. But even this doesn't last. Verse 25, in that day declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way and it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. 
Some people think Eliakim might have used nepotism in verses 23 and 24. I think the idea is that maybe this pride of his father's house gave positions to all of his father's house, to all his relatives. And that and maybe something else, hard to know, led to his downfall. Shebna wanted a king's remembrance. And maybe Eliakim got drunk on the king's power as one of the king's right-hand men. Both of them were living for today in different ways. But there's something much better than the best that today has to offer. Do you want security from trouble? Then take refuge in the God who suffered for your sins. Do you want joy, bigger, better joy than you've ever tasted? At the Lord's right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you want your name to be remembered? Isaiah 43, 1, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Do you want to fix the brokenness in and around you? The power to do that. Is that what you want? Then why not turn to your creator and maker? Isaiah 43, 1, what I just read, it starts out like this. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, But Matt, you only live once. Do you? Revelation 20 verses 5 and 6 talks about the resurrection of believers and it uses this curious phrase, over such the second death has no power. Second death, which implies a first death and a second life, a life to come, a life more abundant and free You only live once? Maybe in some sense. The Bible certainly doesn't teach reincarnation. Instead, it teaches this. If you trust in Christ, you can live forever. Let's pray. God, you are good and you are gracious and we love you. Father, we pray that you would take our imperfect love and you would by the power of your spirit, allow it to grow. Allow us to be more grateful. Allow us to appreciate all that we have in Christ Jesus, our Savior. May we know him and the power of his resurrection. May we count our many blessings. May we name them one by one. And may the result be a grateful people who bring joy to those around them, who bring honor and glory to your name. We pray in your son's name. Amen.